There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Starting in the early years, it became increasingly evident to me that our contemporary Western culture, and in fact, most of the large population cultures around the world now do not support true human maturity anymore. Not only are there relatively few elders, true elders, there's actually relatively few true adults. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome author and founder of the Animus Valley Institute, Bill Plotkin. Bill Plotkin, PhD, is a depth psychologist, wilderness guide, and agent of cultural evolution. As founder of Western Colorado's Animus Valley Institute in 1981, he has guided thousands of seekers through nature-based initiatory passages, including a contemporary Western adaptation of the pan-cultural vision fast. Previously, he has been a research psychologist studying non-ordinary states of consciousness, professor of psychology, psychotherapist, rock musician, and whitewater river guide. In 1979, on a solo winter ascent of an Adirondack peak, Bill experienced a call to adventure, leading him to abandon academia in search of his true calling. Bill is the author of Soulcraft, Crossing into the Mysteries of Nature and Psyche, Wild Mind, A Field Guide to the Human Psyche, and most recently, The Journey of Soul Initiation, A Field Guide for Visionaries, Evolutionaries, and Revolutionaries. He has a doctorate in psychology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. 
People who have come to my classes and workshops over the years have often recommended that I check out Bill's work with the Animus Valley Institute. They clearly thought that his work would appeal to or at least interest me. But honestly, I've always just assumed that they were doing rites of passage weekends and vision quests, which I've never really been too interested in. But over the past couple of years, I've been experimenting with using different archetypal models of development with my coaching clients, mostly using Robert Moore's King, Warrior, Magician, Lover book with my male clients. However, that particular book and some others like it that came out in the 1990s, like Angelus Arian's Fourfold Way, have started to feel a little dated to me. While they may have been relevant to the spirit of the times back then, things have changed quite a bit since they came out. So I've been developing my own model that updates some of the archetypal examples used in those books and comes from a more non-binary, less Eurocentric point of view. As I was researching this, I came across some diagrams from Bill's book Wild Mind that looked a lot like the archetypal model that I'd been developing. His model addressed all of my concerns about previous models and puts the personal development work in a context of radical ecological consciousness that I think should be our first priority these days. Finding his work and seeing the resonance with the direction I was headed in feels like one of those special moments where I've been following my instincts, working on something that I don't know existed in the world, only to find out that someone has already been down this path before and already cleared the way. So I thought it would be really good to invite Bill on the podcast and find out more about his work. And I'm happy to share this conversation we had with you all. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support my work, you can subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app, share this episode with your friends, or contribute financially by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by sending a one-time donation via PayPal to hello at brianjames.ca. Your support is greatly appreciated. You know, I'm a one-man show over here, and single-handedly producing this podcast takes a lot of time and effort. Any little bit helps, and no donation is too small. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Bill Plotkin on The Medicine Path. I'm here today with Bill Plotkin. Bill, thanks a lot for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Well, it might help if I give a little background as to how I found your work. Okay. Um, might help orient us here. So it's probably over 20 years ago that I was introduced to Robert Moore's book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover which was a kind of Bible of the men's movement in the 1990s. And a lot of the men's groups are still using it as a reference or guidebook. And when I started doing coaching and counseling work with people a few years ago, I revisited that book because I had a lot of men coming to me. And I remember that book being helpful to me in terms of just kind of sorting myself out and understanding my kind of undeveloped potentials and I revisited it and I found, you know, in some ways it felt quite dated. And 
Uh, I wasn't totally comfortable using that book in my work, but uh, I've experimented with it and some guys have picked up on it. But I started to think about developing my own model of the psyche that would help orient people. And in doing that, I was searching around, seeing if anyone else was doing this kind of work. And I found Angelus Arian's book, The Fourfold Way, which uh, is, a, is a beautiful little book, but again, kind of dated. It appropriates a lot of uh, Native American culture and uses the medicine wheel as the model and things like that, which um, I find a little problematic these days. And people had been recommending your work to me over the years, you know, they'd come to a workshop or class and they'd hear what I was interested in and what my mission was in the work that I do. And they say, well, you should check out Bill Plotkin. And, you know, I kind of knew about you on the periphery, but I always figured that you were uh, like a rites of passage guy, a vision quest guy. I thought that's what you were doing. And I thought, well, you know, I find that stuff interesting, but it's not really what I'm looking for. <clears throat> but recently, uh, as I was doing some research on maps and models of the psyche and developmental models, uh, I found some diagrams of things that you had produced over the years in your earlier books. I said, oh, this seems like it's about a lot more than rites of passage or, uh, you know, initiatory weekend work, that kind of stuff. And so I picked up Wild Mind and I found that you had developed a map of the psyche in your own way. And a lot of it really resonated with me. And I love how you put in the context of uh, like the global crisis, like uh, what kind of humans do we need in our world at this time to address the the concerns of this time um, so i really appreciated that and that led me just to kind of explore your work and see that uh, you're a practicing psychotherapist you had a jungian background or depth psychological background so lots of resonances there and uh, when your new book came out i just thought wow this is really interesting because the model i'd been developing i was calling the four initiations and your book is called The Journey of Soul Initiation. So my ears immediately perked up and I thought, well, I got to talk to this guy. I got to see what's, uh, <laughs> what, what the book is about and what his work is about. And so I'm excited to have you here so that I can explore a little more deeply the nature of your work and particularly the topics you address in the new book. So, yeah, excited to. Yeah, maybe a place to start for anyone who's not familiar with your work is if you could just let us know a little bit about the work that you do at the Animus Valley Institute. Yeah, um, we have, um, just as general background, we have about 20 guides and maybe 100 trainees, and we're offering programs in 15 or so countries around the world and have been doing this work for 40 years. Um, and most generally, our work is about human development, nature-based and soul-centric human development. Um, so I've been asking for about 40 years this question of what, what is a, a mature human? And what are the kinds of um, communities or cultural settings that support people to truly mature, to become fully human. And um, starting in the early years, it became increasingly evident to me that our contemporary Western culture, and in fact, most 
of the large population cultures around the world now do not support um, true human maturity anymore. Not only are there relatively few elders, true elders, there's actually relatively few true adults. And that's, that was a radical conclusion for me to come to for myself as well as for others. Um, and I ended up um, concluding that in the Western world, um, for sure, it's been thousands of years since we've had intact, intact cultural forms for truly maturing human beings. Um, some Western humans tend manage to mature anyways without cultural support, um, but it's relatively few. So at Animus Valley Institute in the biggest um, scope, what we're doing is helping people um, develop what we call the four facets of human wholeness, uh, which we're all born with the seed of those four facets, um, but our societies tend not to support the development of any of them and suppress at least two of them quite actively. Um, and secondly, um, through the uh, resources that we develop or cultivate through um, the four facets of wholeness, we can um, engage in what we call self-healing. We're able to heal our own uh, woundedness, um, which I've come to discover is a much deeper and more lasting form of healing than when we're healed by somebody else. So many people in the Western world are not capable of engaging in self-healing because they haven't cultivated their facets of wholeness. So thank God for um, talented healers, psychotherapists, and so on. Um, but our primary work is what, at Animus Valley Institute, is what is the journey of soul initiation, which is enabled once people have done enough of their foundational holding and uh, self-healing work. And it's a um, journey, the journey of soul initiation, that a person can't begin until they reach a stage of life that isn't even on the maps of Western psychology. I know what I'm speaking about because I am a Western trained psychologist. Um, and um, uh, most people in the Western world, uh, 80 to 90% never reach the stage of life where the journey of soul initiation can begin. But it's actually not that hard actually to reach it. Um, with, we found that with the support of, of practices for cultivating wholeness and for self-healing, people um, can uh, reach this stage of life, which I call the cocoon stage. So our primary work, um, which we call soul craft or the journey of soul initiation or the descent to soul are, are for those 10 to 20% of uh, humans who are ready um, for this uh, descent to soul, um, which is an experience where we find our deepest belonging and our deepest purpose and meaning in life. But it's not what most people think it is because most people think in terms of, uh, when it comes to purpose or meaning, think in terms of like my social role or my vocation or career and so on. But um, soul initiation is a process of several years. That's not a it's not a weekend rite of passage. You're right about that. It's a process of several years that enables us to discover 
what we sometimes call um, the truth at the center of the image we were born with. And this is uh, an old idea actually that we're each born to take a particular place, not just in the human community, but the, the more than human community, the larger earth community. And um, another way to say that is that each of us has a unique niche in the larger ecology that we are born to take. And so we call that our unique uh, ecological niche. And that's actually what I've ended up meaning by the word soul. It's our unique place, mm. our ultimate place in the world. And we're born with it, but we have to go through this developmental sequence where we forget it er very early in life. And then we learn how to be a social creature in our particular uh, cultural setting. And then once we've succeeded at that, and that's what's so hard for contemporary people but to truly succeed at, at, at feeling a deep belonging socially and possibly vocationally, um, then uh, mystery, I like to say, moves us into this next stage of life where we're heading down to the depths to find, to recover, you could say, the, um, that mystery, that unique place in the world we were born to take. Okay. Well, that's quite an overview. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I could just uh, pick up a few, a few of those threads okay. and um, we could take a look at them. So the first thing, if you could talk a little bit about those four facets of wholeness that you mentioned, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, that book, um, what's the name of that book again that you mentioned at first that uh, King well, Lover? Oh, uh, King Warrior, Magician Lover. King Warrior, Magician Lover. Yeah, that's an example of facets of wholeness, but it's not all four of um, all the four kinds. Um, um, so um, I ended up um, mapping the human psyche onto what maybe you were referring to earlier as the medicine wheel, but um, our work at Animus is not drawn at all from uh, indigenous traditions, but from our own Western mystery traditions. But what we find all th through the world is that um, intact cultures have mapped wholeness onto nature's template. And um, there's three particular templates, which are all natural templates, which are all basically um, point to the same kind of meanings. And those are the four seasons, um, the four cardinal directions and what we experience in the natural world in, in each of the four directions. And uh, third, the four times of day, sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight. So um, some people, when they think of indigenous traditions, refer to this as the medicine whale, but more generally, it's, it's nature's template. So um, the four um, facets of wholeness um, we at Animus think of them in terms of the four cardinal directions. In the North, we have what we call the nurturing generative adult. Nurturing generative adult, which is um, the facet of our wholeness that's capable of self-healing among other things, but also capable of nurturing others and also um, capable of mature leadership um, and um, um, creative uh, manifestation 
of one's true work in the world or one's true way of being. And in the East, we have what we call the innocent sage or the innocent slash sage. And the East has a lot of paradox about it and it's both innocent and wise. That's why innocent slash sage. Um, there's both wisdom and a innocent capacity to be fully present to the world. Um, and in the South is what we call the wild indigenous one. Indigenous, not referring to any other native traditions, but to the fact that we're all, um, every human is a natural creature of, uh, that's indigenous to this planet Earth. Um, and the wild indigenous one, this is the South facet, um, is... Um, somatically very alive, loves being embodied, loves its particular body, loves all emotions. There's no such thing as a toxic emotion to the wild indigenous one. There, it, there are toxic emotions um, as far as our wounded parts are concerned, but not to the south facet. And um, in the south, the south facet of us feels its natural kinship with um, all creatures of the world and all habitats and feels as fully um, natural and an animate um, participant in the greater earth community. Mm -hmm. And in the West, uh, we have the facet we call the dark muse beloved. So this is um, the inner beloved. This is the part of ourselves um, that we tend to project onto other lovers when we're um, less mature. Uh, part of maturing is to realize I've got this inner lover inside and my relationship with him, her, them is related to and supportive of, but different than my relationship with an other romantic partner. Um, and though this West facet is also the home of our deepest imagination or our muse and loves the darkness, not darkness the way we think of it in the contemporary um, mainstream Western world as evil or bad, but dark is this fruitful wholeness that contains all the resources that we need but don't haven't um, embraced yet. So it's, it's the spiritual unknown um, that's so essential to our lives. So again, that's very brief, but that's a lot. But mm. these, these four facets of wholeness, um, and um, two of them in particular, the West and the South, which is the Dark Muse Beloved and the Wild Indigenous One, are actively suppressed by contemporary education um, models, um, religious models, and so on. And so we, there's a lot of work to do to, um, to uncover and re-embrace these essential parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm getting a feel for the qualities of those uh, four cardinal points. Um, curious about how you help people connect to them and start to embody them. Do you use uh, certain practices for each each uh, cardinal point? Yes. There's a whole set of practices, and we're learning new ones all the time. And I should say that um, we haven't made up most of them. We've made up some practices and we've uh, modified ones we've learned, but these are kinds of practices you can find in the Western world, um, kind of on the edges of mainstream 
culture. I'll give examples in a, in a moment. Um, but um, in our culture that's so oriented towards competition and proficiency and prowess and winning and being better than others and honing one's strengths, we tend to develop or cultivate the facets that we're already naturally somewhat strong at. Mm -hmm. And we leave out the other ones, which tend to be the most important ones. The weaker ones are the most important ones for us to actually go through this journey of soul initiation. So um, that's why a map is so important because again, in the Western world, we tend to identify our strengths and then keep building on them. And, and then we end up being kind of lopsided and, and not fully developed. So um, yeah, there's quite a, a few um, kinds of practices. Um, like in, on the inner world, we do lots with dream work because often in our dreams, these facets of wholeness will show up disguised as various characters and then we can be in relationship to them and uh, develop our communication, our rapport with them. And also we use, um, again, inner world, uh, deep imagery journeys. Um, but uh, much of our work is, is nature-based in terms of uh, the, the world um, outside our four walls. And so a lot of our practices have to do with um, wanders on, on the land. And there's some um, particular kinds of practices that help us um, develop each of these four different facets. Um, like the nurturing self, we might help uh, develop that by um, learning how to praise the, the beings and the, um, the habitats, the landscape of, of the world and um, learning how to tend to the land mm -hmm. uh, in various kinds of ways. Um, and the East facet, um, uh, traditional contemplative arts, meditation practices and so on can help quite a bit, but also um, developing the, um, our um, sense of humor and our inner trickster. Um, there's a, a variety of practices for that. Um, these are just a few examples. And the South is a lot of body-based experiences of, um, of um, learning to uh, embrace all of the, the feelings and emotions uh, that are somatically based. And uh, for a lot of work, a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, trauma work that's involved um, because what we do with overwhelming experiences in general is if, we, if we're not able to assimilate them, then we protect ourselves from the, those emotions and um, those the associated somatic feelings. And so we have to learn to befriend the body again. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, learning how to communicate with other human beings uh, through feeling and imagination are very uh, kind of central practices that we use quite regularly. And in the West um, facet, we do uh, a lot of dream work and helping people be in relationship to their own deepest imagery. And again, uh, the deep imagination um, and uh, practices, again, the practices of uh, talking across the species boundaries, which is a, a, um, a term from Gary Snyder. Uh, communicating with the others are practices we use quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just a, a brief, um, very partial kind of example of the kind of practices.
Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thanks. Um, I guess uh, maybe the next question for me then, you know, you mentioned something about the true adult and the North node that you're describing is the generative adult. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? Because like you mentioned in the latest book, there's a lot of talk about how we're lacking true elders in our Western societies. Um, but, you know, you take it a step further and say, actually, we're lacking a lot of true adults. So I can see how that might be confrontational to a lot of people, you yeah. know, people who are yeah. in their middle age go, what do you mean? I'm an adult. Yeah. I've got a mortgage. I've got a job. I've got kids. Yeah. You know, what more do you want from me? Um, so could you unpack that and talk about, you know, why that's important to you? Yeah, thanks. Um, the first thing is um, I'll invite all of us to take a deep breath on this one um, <laughs> because it is quite a leap from our uh, mainstream conventional Western maps. So maybe the first, maybe perhaps somewhat comforting, comforting thing to say is that um, that the um, understanding of maturity or true adulthood that we use at Animus is completely off Western maps. So we're not calling people immature um, by Western standards. Most everybody, I would imagine everybody who's listening to this podcast would rate as quite mature by Western standards. But, um, and here's where it starts getting um, a bit radical is to say that um, um, the kind of, our, our Western ideas of maturity is what I would consider a healthy early adolescent. And by early adolescence, I don't mean the first half of our teen years. I mean, um, this stage, the psycho spiritual stage of life that starts um, at puberty. And um, tragically for most contemporary people never ends, no matter how long one lives, one still is in this psychological stage of early adolescence. And it's not our fault. It's, um, uh, it's because we've lost so many hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, the cultural practices that enable us to more deeply mature. So for me, a, a true adult, um, here's, here's a three-part definition. A true adult is somebody who experiences their primary membership in the world as being in the larger earth community. Like that's my... Um, my, my primary membership and participation that I am a innate uh, native member of this larger earth community of, of many species and habitats and so on. And my um, religion, if I have one, or my spiritual practice, my ethnicity, uh, my family identity, my job and so forth are all really important, colorful parts of what make me the particular kind of human I am, but none of them are my primary membership. It's primarily that I'm an earthling. Um, and that's not just a concept for a true adult. It's, it's an embodied experience. Uh, you can say we become transcultural in a certain sense, mm -hmm. reach true adulthood, but that's the, the first of three parts. So a true adult is someone who experiences their membership first and foremost in the earth community. And secondly, has had one or more revelatory experiences 
of their unique place in that earth community. The unique, that's what I mean by soul. And third, um, a true adult is someone who has created ways to embody that unique um, way of participating in the larger earth community as a gift to that larger community, including our, our fellow humans. So another way to say it, one of my favorite shorthand phrases for a true adult is a visionary artisan of cultural regeneration. Hmm. Visionary, that true adults are visionaries. Their, their lives are rooted in revelatory or visionary experience of their soul, of their unique place in the world. And they're artisans, they're people who've learned how to craft a way of being in the world, which embodies their true place as a gift, as a giveaway to the larger world. Um, and doing that um, without necessarily trying to independently is a um, contribution to cultural regeneration. For a culture like ours that needs to regenerate, it's about cultural generation, regeneration. Mm -hmm. For healthier cultures, we would just call it cultural evolution. Or, um, or preservation, maybe. Absolutely. For so many uh, indigenous people, it's, it's preservation, yes. Yeah. Whew. I love it. I just, the first stood up on my neck when you're describing that, because to me, it sounds like a real call to action for everybody. It is, yeah. What we need in the world now more than anything are, are true adults. Um, in some ways, what we need more than anything are true, healthy adolescents. Because a healthy adolescent is somebody who, among other things, experiences their innate belonging in the, um, in the more than human community. So healthy adolescents are um, what at animus we call ecologically awakened or shorthand eco-awakened. And a, an eco-awakened person is someone who experiences their, um, their, their animal body participation um, and their kinship with all the other creatures of the world. That's just help healthy early adolescents. Right, like a, the wild child that <clears throat> is being tamed in our current culture. Yeah, exactly. So eco-awakening is in some ways reawakening because we're all born as wild children who, who you know, all um, children in, in early childhood um, find it completely natural we all have did find it completely natural to speak to the others to speak to the birds and the grasshoppers and the rabbits and the trees um and, and to be to be naked playing in the mud having these conversations with the world around you and even your invisible friends uh man. absolutely yeah and and our educational and cultural systems and religious systems suppress that very early in life. So an eco-awakened person is someone who's actually just reawakened to their uh, natural belonging to this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when we, when we name that, it, uh, you know, it touches my heart and I feel quite a bit of grief, actually, you know? Yeah. So when you're doing the work at Animus Valley, is, uh, is grief like grieving what we've lost or what's been suppressed 
Is that is that an integral part of the work? It is, absolutely. We didn't suspect it. I didn't suspect it in the very early years. But it turns out um, grieving is as much a part of the actual experience of, of um, being on an animus immersion as anything else. And it's for reasons um, you mentioned, Brian, that as we begin to come alive to the world and to ourselves and our own bodies and, and our relationship with all our, um, um, all our relatives, as indigenous people say, which is to say all the other beings, um, there's this wonderful arousing aliveness that we experience, but at the same time, we realize, oh, this is what I've been missing for yeah. so long. And this is what my people are missing. And this is what my society is missing. And this is bedrock cause to the, all the problems and crises in the world now. And so um, sometimes people feel the, the biggest and strongest grief of their lives as they're starting to come alive and reawaken. Um, and so in the early years we had to start adjusting, like how do we hold this grief that shows up as we're beginning to cultivate our human wholeness and how do we say yes to it? And, and one of the things, of course, we learn is that uh, pretty um, soon on is that grief and love live in the same place in our heart. They're in the same room. And if, you're, if you won't open the door to grief, you're not gonna open the door to love, the deeper love as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of what Martine Prechtel talked about as grief and praise being like the totally. wings of the same bird. It's yes. Like, you just can't have Very one much. without the other because if you love something, you're going to either be away from it at some point or you're going to lose it altogether. Um, it just, it goes hand in hand. And, uh, you know, I know that feeling like when you start to have this awakening, it's like, on, you know, the first response might be, oh, my God, this is amazing. The second response for me is like, oh, God, I've been missing this all that time. And I look around and I go, oh, my God, I don't see it happening in the schools or in people's families or in the wider culture. And it's like, oh. and, you know, that's where despair can come in, I think, you know, because you see the way dominant culture is suppressing this in the smallest of children from day one, putting the, the shoes on the kid, putting the kid in the car seat, putting a screen in front of the kid. And it's like, God, how, you know, how do we, how do we combat this? Yeah. Yep. And when you mentioned despair, I always think of um, the extraordinarily important work of Joanna Macy, one of our true great earth elders, alive in the Western world now. And uh, her work that she calls um, the work that reconnects, which she originally called something like 40 years ago, despair and empowerment work, mm. despair and empowerment. And, and what one of the many things Joanna teaches us is that um, the two go together, despair and empowerment, that we we won't feel fully empowered and ready and motivated to help improve our world unless we can also open to our despair and, and our grief. And it might be tempting to say, well, okay, we do despair and then we can move on to empowerment. But one of Joanna's le lessons is that 
in, in the world as it is today, especially, we will never get past our despair. Mm. Anybody who's paying any attention to what's happening in the world or even their local communities, know there is so much tragedy and atrocities taking place everywhere um, that if we're paying attention, uh, offering our attention and, and being fully alive to ourselves and our emotions, despair is gonna be part of our everyday experience. And because of that, empowerment uh, is, will be part of our everyday experience, our readiness and our deep, deep motivation to, to make a difference and to give of our life to help enhance, at least sustain life, but ultimately to enhance it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the only response that's going to get you out of bed, you know, when you wake up to that despair. Uh, either you shut down completely or you just try to avoid it altogether through distraction or addiction or you go, okay, well, if not me, then who, you know, so I got to figure out what I can contribute to improve things, you know, to move things forward, to repair yeah. things. It's, you know, it's the only way. Yeah. Beautifully said. Um, but I'll add one thing that, that gets into the, again, the heart of the work we do at Animus that, in a healthy adolescence, again, I don't mean our teen years, um, I mean in, in the, the pre-adult stage, which again, I've offered a definition earlier about adulthood. Um, in, in a healthy adolescence, we do have to, what you say is correct, we have to figure out what we can do today or more generally this year in my life to, uh, to lessen the uh, destruction of life and to begin to uh, help create the infrastructure for healthier societies. But when we go through the journey of soul initiation, we're no longer figuring it out. It's, it's not a journey of the strategic mind. Yeah. We're discovering the person, if you will, that we were born to be. And, and that, that discovery can't happen through the strategic mind can't help and help happen through figuring out. It's something that we become the raw material, the, our egos, our conscious self become the raw material of that transformative journey. And we, our egos start getting worked on by the soul, by the mystery, and we ourselves get reshaped. So it's not the ego that heroically figures it out right. on the journey of soul initiation. It's the Adoles the healthy adolescent ego that gets um, shape-shifted, that gets um, reformed into an adult ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are, um, what are some of the signs that we can listen for that the soul is moving us in a particular direction toward our soul's purpose or toward our unique eco-niche? Yeah, great question. Um, earlier in life, especially in adolescence, um, we become aware that something we might call the soul has, is guiding us. It's, it's helping us. It's giving us hints of what to do and who to be in relationship with and what communities to uh, form alliances with that will help us do our growing, our holing, our, the cultivation of our natural wholeness and our healing, our self-healing. So the soul in the first half of life, which is to say childhood and adolescence, 
the soul is kind of like a um uh a guardian angel and it's it's giving us little clues of of who to be in relationship and what to do with our lives and where to live like when i was in in my adolescence in my 20s um um, the soul began to send me dreams about where I was to live. And I actually, sometimes there were maps, like maps of the four corners, which is where I live now. <clears throat> or um, someone would tell me about the work that someone else was doing, like uh, the work of Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, who were two of my early teachers. Um, and something would go, just a light would go on or a body rush would go on just hearing their names. Like I've got to find out what these people are doing. And that's the soul um, providing us some guidance. Um, and then when we, um, um, a, a major life passage that again, most contemporary people never go through, maybe only 10 or 20% um, is the passage from what I call early adolescence to late adolescence. My other words for those stages are the oasis, that's early adolescence, um, to the cocoon, that's late adolescence. The cocoon is, uh, of course, a place where there's a, a very radical transformation of being um, for caterpillars and for humans as well. Um, metaphorically, of course, for humans. And the passage between those two stages um, I call confirmation. And um, again, the cocoon stage, which, which is a healthy culture, considered late adolescence, um, is the stage where the journey of soul initiation um, takes place. So in that confirmation stage, um, I wanna say some things about what we're experiencing. And we could say soul is helping us out um, or, or giving us certain signs at that point. Um, but in particular, during confirmation, um, Keep in mind that's that's the end of the oasis of the early of early adolescence, and early adolescence doesn't end until we've succeeded at the tasks of that stage. And, the, and um, simply put, the the task of early adolescence is to develop a social presence or a persona that is both authentic to who you really are, to your true values and interests, and so on, and emotions and also um, um, socially accepted, which is say socially successful. So mm -hmm. you've, you've developed a version of yourself, at least one version of yourself that is authentic and works socially in your peer group. And that's exactly the task that most people have trouble with because yeah. of developmental problems from childhood. It's hard to, to be authentic. Well, okay, let's just take a little pause there. Okay. <laughs> invite people to take another deep breath because what you're calling early adolescence is where I meet a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Yes. Trying to figure out how can I be more authentic? How can I be myself in my family, in my job, in my culture? Um, you know, Krishnamurti had that great phrase that everybody loves to repost that uh, it's no sign of a healthy individual to be adapted to a sick society, something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. So that combination of authenticity and healthy attachment 
is often um, severed really early on. We learn yes. to suppress our authentic self to get along in our family and then in our school and then in the workplace. And then we wake up sometime, hopefully we wake up at midlife and go, wait a minute, this isn't me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, wow, that's a big task in itself is to find how can I be myself and still get along in the, the world I was born into. Totally. Yeah. Um, and well said. And what we found at Animus and a lot of what we've been doing for 40 years is developing maps and practices to help people reach that um, level of authenticity and social acceptance. And it's really not that hard to do once you have the maps that identify the particular work that you need to do as an individual and you have practices for doing it. It's, it's not, it really isn't rocket science. It's, it just under, underscores uh, to what a degree our contemporary cultures suppress um, natural human development. So just to give you a few ideas is um, one of the things that happens in a healthy early childhood is that we are mirrored by others uh, accurately for who we are, because we we are individuals even right after birth or before birth. Um, and mirroring um, is you know the basis of forming healthy attachment. And healthy parents can mirror their kids. They're not trying to make their kids into anybody else other than who those, that child is born to be. Uh, but so many of us were not mirrored in a healthy way. And so we need to have that experience later in life. And a, a talented psychotherapist can do that. Um, and um, even a, a healthy um, group therapy setting, or just more generally, not even therapy, but a healthy group. So one thing we practice is um, at Animus Valley Institute, like many groups these days, is the art of counsel. And part of what happens in counsel is that um, everybody has a chance to speak and speak authentically and to be mirrored by others. Oh, okay. So you, you mean um, counsel with a C, not counsel as in counseling? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Counsel, C-O-N-C-I-L. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. Yeah, well, Carl Rogers thought that that was so important and so necessary that he made that his whole approach to therapy pretty much is mirroring. Yeah, it's it's such an essential piece. There's so much else that needs to happen, but sure, yeah, that's an essential, but crucial, piece. right? Crucial. Yes, it is crucial. Another example is in a middle childhood, roughly for most people, age four to twelve. Um, what we call at Animus, what we call the nature-based task of middle childhood is to learn the enchantment of the natural world, mm. is to discover one's natural way of belonging to this larger earth community. And the, um, the technique, um, so to speak, of doing that is called play, playing outside. Yeah. Um, not being supervised, but pl playing with other kids outside and um, not particular games, but just playing with, um, with mud and sticks and building things and pretending. And, 
and learning the other animals and which is to say learning how to imitate them. That's what mm -hmm. natural children just naturally do. And by doing that, we come to just to experience ourselves at home, not just in our family, but also in the larger earth community. And if we don't have that experience in middle childhood, um, then there's a certain kind of not at homeness that we feel at our center. There's a certain kind of restlessness, a certain kind of anxiety, a certain sense of not belonging. So even in our conscious minds, when we're like teenagers and later, um, we might say to ourselves, you know, the important thing in belonging is with my peer group and, you know, with the cultural scene and so forth and the current style and music and dance and so forth. Um, my gender identity. Um, but even if we succeed at those forms or realms of belonging, we're not going to feel truly at home in the world if we don't also feel at home as a natural creature in a, in a larger earth community. And that's what so many people are missing, that we can do therapy forever that has to do with um, being able to generate um, acceptance socially, which is so important, it's absolutely essential. But if we don't also feel, um, experience ourselves somatically fully at home in this greater, more than human world, we will always have this restlessness. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, yeah. another example of what we need to do. And it's not hard. It's just that we need the models and the practices to help us help ourselves do that. Yeah, thanks. You know, one of the um, things I find interesting about your work is you've got a unique definition of soul. You talk about it as our eco niche, and we've mentioned it a couple of times, but it might be helpful if uh, you go into that a little bit so you can help people understand what you mean. You bet. Um, yeah, sometimes people think I've changed the subject. I'm not talking about what people usually mean by soul. And I'm, I'm definitely not talking about soul as in the religious, Western religious context of some metaphysical thing that comes into the body at some point before birth and leaves when we die. Not, not that sense of soul at all. And I'm also not talking about soul as more or less a... Um, synonym for the psyche or for the mind or the fact that we have consciousness. Those are other uses of the word soul. But a, a very, very common uh, connotation of the word soul is um, that which gives us our deepest meaning, our deepest belonging, our deepest sense of aliveness. And um, I've come to understand that what gives us our deepest sense of meaning is um, the unique place in the larger earth community that we were born to take, which is to say our ecological niche. Um, so, so maybe a bit defensively, I like to say, no, I haven't really changed the topic at all. I've, um, I've placed soul back in the place where I believe it ultimately belongs, which is in this larger natural world that soul, you might say, is what is most natural about anything. Um, so in this uh, definition of soul, everything has a soul because everything has uh, is created or is born 
to take a unique place in this larger symphony of, of life. So, um, but one of the places that it becomes difficult is that when we let's just look at the, the science or the discipline of ecology, what we um, are reminded of very quickly is that a niche, a, a things or a, a creature's niche is its set of relationships with everything else in its ecosystem. It's just web of relationships. And for any given thing, it, that's web of relationships is so complicated, so complex that you can't literally describe it. You can identify certain features of it, like the, the niche of a fox um, has to do with, you know, the particular ways that it hunts. It's, and, and we recognize its cunning. Um, and the niche of everything has to do with the, the way it serves life because everything on our planet or in the cosmos that's alive, and some would say everything is alive, is designed to serve life, that life enhances life. Mm -hmm. And so to know our niche is to know the way we are designed or born to enhance life. Um, but when a person has a what I call a soul encounter, which is an experiential glimpse or vision of their unique echo niche, it's not a literal description of of, of that would seem to be in the realm of ecology, that the way we humans, the way our consciousness um, interprets or uh, frames or experiences a unique echo niche is through metaphor, through poetry or symbol or archetypes or dream images. Um, so, the way our ego consciousness begins to learn about our unique echo niche is through a metaphor, something uh, mythic or poetic. And so at Animus, we've uh, adopted this term mythopoetic identity, mm. mythopoetic identity. It's the way I consciously understand my ecological niche. So for me, I've had four, depending on how you count, four or five soul encounters in my life. And my first one, which is when I was um, 30 years old, um, was at the end, I was on the fourth day of the four-day uh, vision fast that I took myself out into the wilderness for in the Colorado mountains when I was 30. And on that uh, fourth day, I had a conversation with a spruce, spruce tree and a yellow butterfly um, who were interacting. And the yellow butterfly um, flew to me and actually brushed the left side of my face with her wings. And as she went by, I heard in English, the words cocoon weaver. <clears throat> and um, that's not a, that just won't sound like a, a common everyday experience to the most mainstream Westerners. But after four days of fasting um, and engaging in a, a variety of practices and ceremonies, our consciousness, consciousness shifts radically. And that's not an unusual experience to have. Um, and this uh, image of weaving cocoons, I soon came to understand 
was what my life was about, that I was born to be someone to help myself and others uh, weave cocoons of transformation <clears throat> from psychological adolescence to true adulthood. <clears throat> so that was my first glimpse of mythopoetic identity. And it points to my unique ecological niche, but notice that it doesn't identify a vocation or a social role. Because I think, as I said, towards the beginning of our podcast here, that um, soul identity or soul purpose is ecologically based. It's not socially or vocationally based. That, um, And each one of us, after soul encounter, eventually needs to um, choose one or more jobs or more generally social roles for embodying our mythopoetic identity, but those roles or jobs or careers are what we call at animus delivery systems for our mythopoetic identity. So I've been a psychotherapist, psychologist more generally, a soul craft guide, a vision fast guide, um, an author, and uh, a few other jobs, some of which I actually got paid for. Um, but none of those is my sole purpose. None of those are my mythopoetic identity. They're delivery systems mm. for weaving cocoons. Like if you get to know me well, what you'll see me doing on one of my good days is weaving cocoons. Even though if, if someone asked you, well, what do you mean? What was he doing? You say, well, he was guiding this soul craft program or he was mentoring somebody. Um, but what he was actually doing, he was he was weaving cocoons. Um, yeah, I so get it. maybe that helps. Yeah, I get it. I think um, you know. Uh, first of all, thanks for that term because when I read it, I immediately got it. Uh -huh. You know, right. and, yeah. and I think people will get it. You know, like I'm thinking of uh, a woman who's a bus driver thinking of herself as the mama bear, taking care of all the cubs, making sure they get home safely. Mm -hmm. um, even that has something of that mythopoetic identity, even if that woman isn't kind of doing soul work consciously or going on uh, weekend workshops to come up with this. I think it's something like that can just emerge naturally, don't you think? Yes, I think it can. I think it does. Um, if we if we're in tune with our bodies and our emotions and our deepest longings and follow that deepest longing, um, we might go through this journey of soul initiation, even if we've never heard of such a thing. And even if there's no cultural support for it at all. And, and uh, if we haven't totally cut ourselves off from that, uh, what you, the Eastern know, the innocent sage, that kind of inner child who's open to the imaginal and has the mythic mind. Um, if we haven't cut ourselves off from that, then these images could just spontaneously uh, surface in our consciousness, right? Like, oh, I feel like the mama bear of all these little cubs, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in my new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, it's it's mostly just filled with stories of people going through the experience of the journey, in particular, that key part of the journey we call the descent to soul. And there's, um, and I love these stories. That's one reason I focused on them in this book. But also, there's the stories implicitly and explicitly identify all the many different ways that people can experience this 
this journey. Um, so for example, you might have a, um, a, uh, highly skilled, um, pianist, uh, pianist who, um, when she's playing the piano, um, you could say in one level, well, she's playing this sonata or this, this, uh, tune. And, but if you ask her what she's doing when she's playing that, that music, she might say, I'm praising God. And that's what, and, and I'm only doing well when I'm, I'm in that place of praising God. And that's what I'm really doing. It might look like I'm playing the piano, but. I'm so her, you, could you say her mythopoetic identity is the, the pianist who praises God or would exactly. it? Yeah. So it doesn't always have to be like an animal image or something like that. Oh, yeah, not at all. Yeah. You know, so when I when I read that term and, you know, you telling your the story about Cocoon Weaver, um, I got in a flash this experience that I had. So maybe I think I'd just like to share that um, to kind of add to the well of stories. Um, and, you know, also maybe it helps people understand the term a little better. Um, so when I heard that, I immediately thought of um, an ayahuasca ceremony that I was in uh, a number of years ago down in Peru. And I think, you know, my descent to Seoul w was over the course of many years when I was, you know, I had the kind of typical midlife crisis. I had climbed the corporate ladder, realized the ladder was against the wrong wall and went, God, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then went on this, you know, what I can now call a, a descent into soul to try to discover, well, what is my, my eco niche? What am I here for? Um, you know, how, what kind of adult do I actually want to be? How do I want to contribute? So as part of that, I did a lot of uh, plant medicine work. And in one of these um, ceremonies, I had the vision of myself as a, as a bumblebee. Uh, specifically a worker bee who is going out and gathering up medicine to bring back to the hive. And it really struck me because I realized that that was what I had been called to do. And that's what I had been doing. Um, you know, I traveled all over learning from senior yoga teachers in a particular tradition to try and get the essence of you know, what they got from their teachers and, and then bring it back and teach it in my local community. And I did the same with music and traveled all over collecting these different medicine songs and bring them back and offer them up into circles. Um, and I realized, well, that seems like something I'm uniquely suited for. You know, I had this uh, intense curiosity about the deep aspects of life I have ever since I was a little kid. I came out of the womb reading and I immediately started to read fantasy books, uh, getting into spirituality in my early teens and doing that whole exploration. So it seems like it's something I'm especially suited to just following my curiosity, going out and gathering things up and then bringing them back, trying to synthesize them and offer them back to the community as a kind of medicine. And um, the Im having that image you know, it really struck me and it just kind of landed in my heart as if there was already an imprint of that image there. And it was like, ah, that's who I am. That's my job. 
you know, enough so that I came back and I got a tattoo of it on my wrist to like always remind me, you know, this little worker bee. Mm -hmm. And I also thought it was a really nice synchronicity that my name is Brian and people who know me well often just call me B. Uh, yeah. And so I was like, I, I was reading your book and I was talking to my wife on our walk and I was like, oh, this is such a great idea, this mythopoetic identity. And I, you know, said, and it reminded me of that whole experience I had in the jungle. And then she reminded me that when I was eight, uh, I had a near death experience because I was attacked by a giant swarm of bees. And mm -hmm. uh, I was out in the woods with uh, some other kids and we were crossing a, a creek going over a log and i guess there was a, a nest under the log i was the littlest one i was the last to go over and that's i got the swarm all the other kids ran off screaming and mm -hmm. i was i didn't know which way was up i didn't know where to go i was just trying to fight off the swarm and um our friends whose cottage it was had a um, a big black standard poodle named toro and Toro waited for me and he would bark and I would just kept following his bark. And then I would, you know, be all discombobulated and he would just stop, bark, make sure I was following him. And he led me all the way back to the cottage where all the adults were like, oh my God, here he is. And just started to take care of me after that. But I had to be rushed to a hospital an hour away and I went into shock and had to have adrenaline and all this, right? Very intense experience. But you know, coming full circle, the oh, this um, mythopoetic identity, the worker bee. Oh my God! It seems like I was initiated by the bees when I was a little kid, or something. You know, it was just this incredible resonance across time that uh, feels really meaningful to me, and it does give me a sense of uh, guidance. Like it's something I can always track back to. You know, even doing this podcast, I'm kind of seeking out elders and teachers around the world talking to them, trying to get to the essence of, you know, their medicine and then sharing it with the people who listen to the podcast, you know, that's still kind of doing my worker bee job. Yes. What a beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you for that bee. <laughs> that's, um, that's a beautiful story. And it's, it's a very uh, illustrative of the various aspects of the journey of, of soul initiation um it's it's clearly a mythopoetic identity for you or part of your identity um i say part only because sometimes we have additional soul encounters that further uh differentiate an identity um and it it guides you as to what's really worth doing what 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 way you can be of the greatest value to the world and your story also illustrates a common theme or pattern I've discovered, I'm not the only one I've discovered it in um, soul initiation journeys. And that is what becomes our medicine and is often associated with what um, could kill us or almost maybe did kill us when we were younger. So you were almost killed by that, those bees. Um, so when we're younger, we, Sometimes, I don't know if this is true for your story, but sometimes we protect ourselves from the very phenomena or um, symbols that later turn out to be at the heart of our mythopoetic identity. 
one of the stories in my new book is of a, a woman who's a healthcare provider um, who actually lives on Vancouver Island. <laughs> hmm. And um, she uh, was always horrified by the um, act of hunting. Um, she just felt it was cruel. And of course, the way it's done in the contemporary Western world, it often is cruel, not always. There are some hunters who hunt in a sacred way, but there's a lot of trophy hunters in the contemporary world. And this woman, um, whose name is Christy, was always quite horrified by that. And um, her story of soul initiation is quite remarkable. There's, so I think it's, um, there's, uh, to say it's one of the amazing stories in the book, but what she slowly discovered was that her mythopoetic identity had everything to do with hunting. Hmm. And boy, did she resist that every way possible, but that um, through dreams, through chance encounters, um, and through um, what we call soul craft practices, she kept getting um, confronted with the fact that the very heart of her soul, if you will, was this act of hunting, but it was a sacred kind of hunting. And it wasn't literally hunting so much, although that turned out to be part of it too. And, and she gradually started saying yes to the huntress of herself um, that showed up in various ways, including the archetype of uh, Artemis. Hmm. But among other things, she took a two week course and she learned how to make her own longbow and then her own arrows. Um, and, and then after many months, how to shoot, begin to shoot those arrows. Um, and then she began being stalked by literal flesh and blood bears. And, um, and then she actually got her hunting license with a special tag to hunt bear with bow and arrow. Um, but all, the, all during this time, she's also learning what the, the mythic, the mythological and the deeper symbolic significance of hunting, and in particular, what it is to hunt um, the, the heart and the heart in herself and the heart in other humans, and what it is to pierce that heart with a symbolic arrow and so forth. Hmm. So this is just meant to be an example of what we're most afraid of when we're younger, or what almost killed us when we were younger turns out to be the very essence of our soul identity. And it's not really surprising because the ego, the adolescent ego is terrified by, of soul. It's what, it's what the adolescent ego most longs for and is most terrified by um, because there's, some, there's parts of us that know that if we're going to surrender to this deepest longing, that everything we thought we were and everything we thought the world was is going to crumble. Yeah. And so it's this, inter this amazing tension of it's what we're terrified of, or it's what we most deeply long for. Well, another aspect that's terrifying to the adolescent is um, living up to the responsibility, uh, responding to what the soul, what the world is asking of you. It's the last thing an adolescent wants. The adolescent is looking out for themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah, looking out for themselves. Um, well, the healthy adolescent is 
is is also wanting to contribute to their their social group and so forth but yeah but even that is rare as we talked about you know even that is rare it's yep sadly true yeah we've got a lot of uh, older people out there who are just looking out for themselves and trying to just live up their golden years yep it's yeah. it really is quite tragic and then once we really get that there's again there's a lot of grief that is um really good to have i mean that that deep grief stretches our heart it's it's honest too right it's absolutely honest yes yeah well i think um you know i i i love the kind of the boldness of what you're saying and what that book is about and in naming some of these things it's like you know personally i just kind of go oh thank god someone is like speaking directly to some of these things you know because i don't hear a lot of it i think it takes some courage to do that and a willingness to take a few slings and arrows yourself yeah. um yeah um where did I want to go next? I mean, just that, um, you know, thinking about how us humans are in a really kind of unique position in this ecology. We're, we're probably the only creature who doesn't know what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> I was uh, having my morning coffee on the deck and uh, we've got a cherry tree just outside starting to um, produce fruit and I'm watching like the little birds come up and peck at the sour cherries and that cherry tree knows exactly what it's here to do it's here to produce fruit produce flowers uh, probably produce shade it's probably nurturing the soil around it the little bird knows ex exactly what it's meant to do um, it's eating its fruit, it's spreading seeds, it's doing all, all the bird stuff. And here we are, and we're expected to choose or to figure out what it is we're supposed to be doing. And we've got other things to consider, you know, we're the only creature who has to pay rent to live on this earth, you know, most of us. And there's, I have a lot of grief around that. And I know a lot of people are carrying some unnamed grief around that, that uh, we can't just live, that we have to earn are living uh, more than just sustenance, you know, going out and hunting or uh, harvesting, that kind of thing. Um, so we're in this really unique and kind of terrible position. So what do we do considering that a lot of us can't be following our, our soul's purpose uh, to make money, to pay rent and, and buy food and, and all of that. You know, how, how do we, I know you make a distinction between the sole purpose and the social purpose, but uh, that can be really soul destroying for some people to have to do work that is so not in alignment with what their maybe unconscious soul purpose is or what their conscious soul purpose is. You know where I'm going with this. So how do you suggest people navigate that? I mean, does everyone who kind of wakes up to their soul's purpose have to change their job and, and find a, a meaningful vocation? Yeah, <clears throat> well, there's maybe two parts here implicitly. Um, 
what is what do we do while we're learning to cultivate our natural human wholeness and um, succeeding at the task of psychological early adolescence um, what do we do meanwhile and for most people you have to have something that we call a survival job to do it and that's part of the difficulty and the reality for most people of the contemporary world. Um, it's, it will probably be some generations in the future before that will change or that actually can begin changing you know, in, in our lifetimes, um, but maybe just begin changing. And that's, that's a reality. Um, but um, once we realize how uh, the contemporary cultures suppress the development of our natural wholeness and succeeding at the task of both childhood and adolescence, then we can start addressing those things and make, the, make that uh, cultivation of our human wholeness uh, a priority while we're surviving, paying rent and so forth in whatever way we need to. But primarily, um, Brian, I, I do hear the, the larger or the main uh, focus of your question, which is for those who have had a soul encounter, um, what do they do then? What does the person do then? When you know what your soul wants to do, like in my case, weaving cocoons or in yours, um, um, delivering the, the honey medicine to, to others. Um, at first, we're still in that position where we have to have a survival job. Uh, it doesn't literally have to be a job. We have to have some kind of um, survival, what we call a survival dance. Hmm. For some, it's living in Hawaii and living off the land and not being part of the monetary economy. Or for some people, it's being supported by their parents um, in order to pay rent. Or for other people, it's uh, a job they work a day or two a week at and that's enough. For others, it's a full-time job or maybe two full-time jobs. Um, they need to pay the rent. And if they have children and a partner and so forth or elderly parents, they might have to um, work a job or more to, to um, support everybody. <clears throat> so that's the survival dance. But once you've had an encounter with your soul, which is to say a revelation of your mythopoetic identity, then um, you begin to uh, walk in the world as that person, as that identity. And that's um, what in the book we, I refer to as the fourth of five phases of the descent to soul. The fourth phase, third phase being the encounter with soul, which is to say the revelation of mythopoetic identity. And the fourth being what I call metamorphosis, this essential phase of the journey that, for example, Joseph Campbell completely missed in the hero's journey and is um, something you, it's not part of a rite of passage. Um, but the metamorphosis is where is this phase of the journey in which the, um, the your mythopoetic identity starts doing its shape-shifting work on your ego and your ego gets shape-shifted over a period of months, sometimes years, um, into a state 
where it can actually begin to embody its mythopoetic identity as a gift to uh, the people. And it takes some time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've gotten through that phase of metamorphosis and your ego is actually ready to, to deliver your gift to the world, then you have to create a delivery system, choose and cultivate and hone a delivery system, usually by studying with a master of a particular craft uh, whose delivery system would resonate with your own. Um, and that takes some time, but, uh, but developing that delivery system is what we call a sacred dance. So for people soon after, in the year or two or three or four, after a soul encounter, they're gonna have two dances. They're gonna have a survival dance and a sacred dance. And eventually what the, the teachings that from the wisdom tradition, traditions tell us, and I believe it is true, is that after, as, as, you're, as we're learning our sacred dance, which is say our delivery system, um, and we get better at it, uh, it becomes incredibly valuable to our community, to our people. And our people will find ways to support us to do that so that we don't, to do it more and more full time. So we don't need a separate survival dance in order to do our sacred dance, which is to say our sacred dance becomes our survival dance. They become one and the same thing. We get supported uh, economically or or socially and otherwise to do, to provide this life enhancing gift to our community. Yeah, that totally makes sense because if you're actually in your, your eco niche, uh, then it will be supported by the, the ecology, which is like your community and the place and all that stuff. Right. Exactly. So, you know, you're in your eco niche when you're finding that support, that it's feeling a need from in the community at large. Exactly. Yep. And the community will want you to do that more and more and they'll find a, a way to support you to do it. Yeah. Well, and I really appreciate that you recognize the reality of the situation that most people are in. It's not as simple as following your bliss or finding your purpose and and going for it and manifesting. Uh, It's a lot more complex than that. We have some real world things that we need to take care of while we also, like you said, get into that sacred dance. We, We have these parts of ourselves that we call inner protectors our subpersonalities, <clears throat> and they don't want us to go on the journey of soul initiation, even if we're in the stage of life where it's possible, because um, they, they're afraid of the um, apple cart of our lives being overturned. Um, so they want us to settle. If we're onto something like the journey of soul initiation, if we've discovered what it is, they are inner protectors, sometimes we call them subpersonalities. They want us to settle. They will say, Yeah, just follow your bliss. That's enough. Or I figured out a job that feels truly fulfilling. That's great. Yep, stay with that. Um, because the inner protectors know that if we really start the descent to soul, it, it's going to be an experience of. Of, um, of dying, of dismemberment. Uh, 
and of dis what we call that the dissolution phase or dismemberment phase. And our inner protectors want to protect us from that experience. And so they'll try to get us to settle and not go on the deeper journey. And there's a lot of um, programs and approaches in the Western world today that come under the general banner of finding our purpose, um, which is really, they're really helping people find their social or vocational purpose, which is really important for people in early adolescence. But for people in the cocoon stage, that could be just a distraction because we're being called to this much deeper set of questions about that requires us to um, surrender completely everything we thought about who we were going to be in the world and go through this dying experience of dissolution that is the necessary precursor to the encounter with soul. Hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, what comes to mind too, is that uh, I think some of these protectors or sub personalities aren't always um, so encouraging and positive. They might be saying, no, no, look, you got to make sure you pay the rent. So you need to just take that job. You know? Exactly. You can go to the weekend workshops once a year, you get a couple weeks off, you can do your retreats, but you got to like take care of things. You need stability, you need security, right? Yeah, this um, uh, desire to discover your soul is just a distraction. It's just trying to keep you selfish responsibilities. It's totally selfish, yeah. But like what you're saying is that discovering what you're soul purposes, your eco niche is actually a service to something greater than yourself. And it's going to be incredibly challenging. You know, I think for most, I don't know, for me, it was because this realization uh, that my job was to be a worker bee came at a time when I was living in the Amazon and absolutely loving it. I loved being out of North American culture. I loved uh, having ceremony regularly. I loved working with people who were coming from all over the world to this retreat center. You know, I was in my total happy place. I was playing music all the time, you know. Um, but what this vision was telling me was that, no, no, no. Your job is not to hang out down here. Your job is to take it back to where you came from, where there's people who can't afford to come down here or can't come get the medicine themselves, you got to bring some of that back home. So you got to bring some of that, you know, the music and things back home. Right. And uh, th that wasn't easy to come back and yeah. to try to make a life in North America where it's so expensive. And there's, you know, like I said earlier, they're widening the road out here to make more room for the commuters who are going into the city and there's Costco going up and oh, it's just like so disheartening to live around here. And I live in one of the most beautiful places in North America. And yeah. that dominant culture is totally effing things up. Yeah. So the soul's purpose is not really always selfish, right? Like <laughs> it's never selfish. Yeah. yeah. It's always, it's, it's what provides our greatest service to the world and our own personal fulfillment, our greatest fulfillment. So it's, you could say it's um, that for initiated adult, fulfillment and service are the same thing. You can't separate them anymore. And the experience you just uh, spoke to so beautifully about 
leaving um, the Amazon, it sounds like the passage um, that we refer to as from late adolescence, which is the cocoon, to early adulthood, which we call the um, the wellspring. Um, and that passage um, we call soul initiation. That's that's different from the journey of soul initiation, which ends with the passage of soul initiation. And during that passage, what we essentially feel is happening is that we're getting kicked out of mystery school, this incredibly <laughs> engaging, alluring, exciting oh, I just want to school. stay in the mystery school. I want to stay totally. in that learning position. There's no responsibility. You're just soaking it all up. And yeah. You know. Yeah, totally. And at the passage of soul initiation, it's as if mystery is saying to you, mm -mm, you've got to actually go out in the world and do something with what you've gathered in the cocoon. And um, one of the patterns that um, I've discovered, and I'm, I'm sure healthy cultures will always say this, that whenever we move from one stage of life to the next, it's a terrible thing. It, there's a lot of grieving to do because every stage is the best stage of life to be in when you're in it. Mm -hmm. And every stage is the worst stage to leave as you're leaving it. And so it's not a, it's not a, oh boy, when you move from one stage to the next, it's a, oh no. And the reason healthy cultures invented rites of passage is primarily to help people going from one stage of life to the next um, adapt and understand what this new stage of life, this new consciousness is that they're moving into. And to let the community know this person is moving into a new stage and they could use some support because they're going to be really disoriented and unhappy for a while. Yeah. Because they just left the best stage of life. Whatever well, it was. they're often um, kind of dragged out of the nest or out of mom and dad's home, right? Like they don't go willingly. So that's the first part of it. It's just to like yeah. get that process, uh, like kind of kickstart it. Yeah. But then, of course, support and hold them and all of that, right? Yeah. yeah. So in that sense, a rite of passage actually celebrates and supports a passage that's always has already happened, which as opposed to this idea that I believe is mostly mistaken, that a rite of passage moves you from one stage to the next. No, you already go through the passage and then the elders recognize that's what's happening for you. And then you have a rite of passage to help you adapt to the new stage. Mm, yeah, like, uh, oh, Brian's got some hair in his armpits now. Like it might be time. <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> something's happening. It's time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess one of the other challenges we have is that there's no uh, group of uncles coming and telling us it's time. It's time to go. You're coming with us. And so we've got to kind of self-initiate that process for ourselves. And like you said, it's not going to lead you into more comfort. Uh, it's going to be really difficult and challenging. So that's yet another reason why this could, um, you know, never happen for some. Yep, that's that's right. Yep. So as part of the work, I guess, just uh, talking about, like, you're writing books, and you keep writing books. And, you know, I got to wonder, is, is part of that just increasing people's awareness of where they might be stuck, what's possible for them, and then offering some things as to 
what could help? That's a good summary. Yeah, the the maps and models we use at Animus are, are ones that help people understand where they are developmentally, and what uh, inner uh, psychological and spiritual resources need to be developed, and um, if they're going through the passage of confirmation into the cocoon, or they are already in the cocoon, what kinds of things they can do to support um, their journey, and what it be, what a, a true guide is, what what is the the qualities that a guide has who actually understands the journey of soul initiation, and who can support them through it, like those uncles or those aunties in a healthy culture, or those elders. Um, so, yeah, some some of us can self-initiate, but others of us can at least recognize where we are and that we need, could use some support. Um, the descent to soul tends to go deeper and more effectively and uh, less um, terrifyingly. <laughs> um, if you at least have a, a model that you understand what's happening to you and uh, in the best case scenario, you have a guide to help you through some of the rough spots. Yeah, I can see how it could definitely help the process along. Um, you know, and I think just for myself, um, I, I've relied so much on some of the mentors and teachers that I've met, and then also the peers who are going through similar experiences. It it really helps to, to find the others and to find um, not even uh, soul initiation guides or mentors, but people who are mentors in one of those areas that you feel called to uh, apprentice in or, yeah. Um, but for people who are interested in your approach and some of these maps and models, you offer, uh, well, tell us about some of the offerings. Um, yeah, you could find them all before I forget to say it at uh, www animus.org animus is the spanish word for souls it's uh, a n i m a s An animus not, not animus the masculine soul it's, of uh, carl not, jung exactly it's not us at the end it's as as animus yeah. um, yes and um say so i might have mentioned earlier we have um you know, programs in um, North America, uh, in Colombia and South America, uh, in several countries in Europe and New Zealand and Australia, and occasionally in uh, the Middle East and um, probably other places I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, there's quite a few kinds of programs we offer. Um, they include uh, a very contemporary Western um, form of the uh, pan-cultural vision fast, which are um, 12 to 14 days long, the way we do that ceremony with lots of preparation time and follow-up afterwards. We have a year-long experience that meets four times uh, throughout the year that takes people through the whole process. Um, we have probably at least 20 different kinds of programs. We have mm. programs tend to be five days long, uh, on dream work, deep imagery work, um, council process, um, 
there's there's just to say um, many different kinds, all of which support the journey. Some of our introductory programs are called um, the Wild Mind in, uh, um, Intensive, the Wild Mind Intensive, and the Soulcraft Intensive. And again, you can find them all on our, our website. Yeah, there's a Wild Mind Intensive happening just up the road from me, actually. Yes. Yeah, we've done quite a few programs on Vancouver Island. So for someone who's um, just getting into this work, uh, would you recommend the Wild Mind Intensive is a great place to start and get it oriented? Is a, yep, that or the Soulcraft Intensive is a great place. But um, we generally divide our programs into um, more or less introductory, which does not mean um, easy. <laughs> They're all very intense. And the other programs we call advanced programs and, and um, those require an application so that we can screen people and make sure that people are ready for the even more intense journeys. Um, you wouldn't wanna find yourself in our more advanced programs if you weren't ready. Um, so um, if you get on our website and you, um, you any of the non-advanced, which are the so-called in quotes introductory programs would be great places to start. Yeah. Well, thanks again for giving us your time and sharing so much of, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, I'm happy you're out there. I'm happy I found you. And I listened to my friends after all those years saying, you gotta mm -hmm. check this guy out. I think, I think there's something there that you'll appreciate. Yeah. So the new book's called Journey of Soul Initiation. I'm reading it now and uh, really enjoying it. It just feels like a, a call to action. I feel like um, a, a boost of inspiration and clarity on uh, what is needed most in our day and age. Yeah. Thanks, Brian very much uh, enjoyed the conversation with you. I love the surprising places that it branched off into. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.